We're going to turn again today to John, or excuse me, to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. We're talking about the blessings of justification. We are justified by faith. And we, Isaac said it earlier in uh, the prayer, I think, right at the beginning of the service, to be justified by God is God acting as judge, pounding the gavel in his courtroom and declaring guilty sinners who believe on his son, he declares them righteous. And if God declares us righteous, who can condemn us? If God puts the righteousness of Jesus on the account of the one who believes, who can condemn that person? Can Satan? No. Will Satan try to condemn us? Will sometimes our own conscience rise up and cause us grief and say, if you were a Christian, you wouldn't have thought that? Possibly the conscience will be our enemy as well at times. We need to teach our conscience gospel truth. We need to teach our conscience how to Speak to us based on the gospel of grace. God does not condemn his own. The condemnation is past. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ. Romans 8.1 Jesus bore my sin. And therefore I will not have to bear the wrath of God against my sin. Because the wrath already fell on my substitute, his dear son. And payment was made in full. And the father was satisfied with that payment. We know that for a fact because the father raised his son from the dead to demonstrate that nothing is owed any further. So what are the benefits of that? Well, we said, based on Romans chapter 4, that Abraham is the case study. He was justified by faith. Before he was circumcised, before the law was given, and before he did any works. So justification is by faith, period. Not faith and works. Not faith and ritual. Not faith and law. Justification is by faith alone, period. Abraham is the example. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Genesis 15, 6. And Romans chapter 4 amplifies that and explains that's exactly how it is for us. We are justified by faith alone. Period. End of sentence. Full stop. And because we're justified, then works will come downstream, you see. We will be so grateful to our God that we will work. We will live a certain way because of this awesome grace that was poured out upon us in the work of His Son and in the declarative act of God called justification. Amen. That's wonderful, wonderful things for me to contemplate. So I want to bring today to your attention Romans 5.1. And really we will read a few more verses than that, but we're going to dig down into verse 1. So look at your Bible. Praise God for a Bible. Look at it. Let's read along silently as I read aloud from Romans 5.1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also 
we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which is given unto us. Amen. Praise God for His precious Word that teaches us these truths about how we as guilty sinners are made right with God and how we're brought into this right standing with God through the work of Jesus laid hold of by faith and declared by God to be now righteous in His sight. And what are the results of that? First one is verse 1, we have peace with God. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to give you the outline. It's two points. It's very simple today. But it's going to take a while to get there. So patiently go with me. Uh, If you're not going to turn to all these passages I give you, have a pen and paper ready and just maybe write them down. I'm going to give you quite a few to buttress, to ground carefully in Scripture these two points I want to make. Two solid truths that I want to put before you, and they are this. The sinner, the unregenerate man or woman, is at war with God. Regardless if they are sitting in a grass hut with a barely a piece of a loincloth covering them and a big bone through their nose, their primitive whether that kind of person or whether some person at the other end of the spectrum who's civilized and cultured and refined and educated and living in a million-dollar high-rise condo, that one and that one, apart from Christ, apart from the grace of God, that sinner, unregenerate in his natural state, is at war with his Maker. That's the first point I want to give to you and give you a number of scriptures to show that. Second point is this. God is at war with the sinner as well. The sinner is at war with God. And because God is holy and just, God is at war with that sinner. Who do you think will win that war? Can a little creature successfully fight against his creator? Can a thing of dirt fight against the eternal spirit, the triune one? Who do you think might win that battle? It's an awful battle to fight. It's a foolish battle. It's an insane suicidal mission for a sinner to fight against God. And yet that is his default position. He is born with that. And so let's look at some scripture to say that. I want to put this before you so that you will see this was what I was before I called on Jesus. I was literally at war with my maker. And because of my little puny rebellious stance, he was at war against me. And it is only by grace that he didn't crush me immediately. 
but he patiently endured and he brought me to himself and he forgave me. And the miracle of salvation is we were that bad and now we're justified and we have peace with God. So if you have a good, thorough, robust, fully developed understanding of the doctrine of the fall, the doctrine of depravity, if you understand what you are by nature, you will sing his praises when it comes time to sing when you understand what you are now by his grace. When you see what he did, he brought you all the way from there to now an adopted son or daughter, declared righteous in his sight. You will praise him with all your heart for the rest of this earthly life and for all eternity. Salvation is a big miracle, beloved. It is a great, glorious, gigantic miracle because this is what we were. What were we? A rebel at war with our maker. And so we go back to Genesis chapter 3. God makes a beautiful garden and he puts the man and woman in it. And he gives them a test. And he says, you may eat of all these trees, but there is one tree you're to not eat of. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And instead of enjoying God's bounty and being thankful for what God gave, somehow they were drawn to this one restriction. They had this curiosity. They began to look at this tree. Oh, look what a beautiful tree it is. It can't be that bad, can it? It's beautiful. It's good for food. It's so pleasant to our eyes. We just drink in its beauty. And then before they know it, there's a third party there saying, yeah, did God really say you couldn't eat of all these trees? And you're not really going to die. And here is this couple in their innocence taking and defying their maker with an outright act of rebellion. And here comes God in the garden, and they run and hide. And God calls for them, and they run and hide. And God finds them, of course, He always does. He finds who He's looking for, and He finds them, and He he says, have you eaten of the tree? Who told you you were naked? And Adam blames Eve, and Eve blames the serpent, and everybody blames everybody else. Nobody owns up to their guilt and their sin. It's always easier to blame others, isn't it? Well, we're Adam's descendants, aren't we? We get caught. We get busted. Red-handed, hand in the cookie jar, caught. And we find a way out of it. We blame somebody. It was uh, their fault, not mine. We're so quick to justify ourselves. And there was the beginning of rebellion in the garden. And then just a little bit later on in human history, God sees that the wickedness of man is great in the earth. This is Genesis 6, 5. And that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only what? Evil, continually. His heart, his imagination was, this was pre-flood, before he flooded the world, he saw that the hearts, I mean, he saw the men's hearts. And he said, they're evil continually in their heart and in their imaginings. And he determined that he would destroy the human race except for eight people. Noah and his wife and their three sons and their wives. And God gave grace to Noah. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. We see that man's propensity, man's tendency is always to go against his maker until God gives him a new heart. It is his default position. It is what he is by nature. Nobody has to teach 
him to be at odds with God. He comes into the world with this aversion to God. We don't have to teach our children to be selfish. We don't have to teach them to snatch a toy from that other child. We have to try to teach them to share. He had that first. Don't snatch it. But I want it. Why is that within our little precious ones? How is that there? So early and so deep within them. Somehow we try to teach. Don't do that. We never have to teach them to do that. Their little heart comes into the world as all of us do. As Psalm 51 says, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Psalm 51, 5. At the moment of conception, we inherit a nature that goes back to our parents and their parents and their parents all the way back to Adam and Eve. We are recipients of a sin nature at birth, at conception even. Psalm 58, 3 says, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they be born, speaking lies. Psalm 130, verse 3 says, if God keeps a record of sins, who can stand? If God keeps a record of sins, will there be anyone that can stand in his sight? And the fact of the matter is, God is keeping a record of sin. Read Revelation chapter 20. The books were open, and another book, and God has books, and at the judgment, He's going to break the books open, and He's going to judge those men and women based on what they did in their lives, based on their works. They did this, and God had it recorded. And it will be an awful day of reckoning when a sinner stands before his creator judge and is judged for all that God kept a record of his life for his 60, 70, 80, 90 years of life on planet Earth. How man needs a Savior. How man needs a mediator to do something about that record that God has kept. If thou, O Lord, shouldst mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? Why does man sin so much? Why is there such problem in this world? Do you believe the world is broken? We do. We believe the world's broken, don't we? We see a broken world. Why is there such strife in this world? Why is there such hatred in this world? Why is there such animus and malice in this world? People are at war with each other because they go back to a deeper problem. People are at war with their maker. Sinners are at war with God and they can't get along with each other because at the very root and the very source of their being, their heart, they are defying God. The good God, the kind and worthy God. Man in his heart hates and pushes away with all his being his maker. This is what we are by nature. Now I can almost hear objections, not from you folks, but I can hear others saying perhaps, and maybe even you in your heart of hearts, you would say, I don't think I'm that bad. I don't really feel that I'm at war with God. I haven't been at war with God my whole life. I've kind of liked the idea of God. I've kind of always cherished God. But you see, the very fact that you would question this biblical teaching, the very fact that you would say, well, I'm not at war with him, 
betrays the fact that you are at, even now defying the God who says, this is what you are by nature. And if you would argue that, if you would base reality on your feeling and your experience, I don't feel that I'm at war with my maker. Shows that you are perhaps still at war with your maker. And you have a high view of yourself and you have not understood the depths of human depravity. And I trust that you're not a part of this church believing that. We glory in the gospel of grace because we are so desperately in need of grace. We have nothing to bring to the table but our wretchedness. We bring to the table our wretchedness. We do not bring leverage where we can leverage with God. God, I've got a little good here and I'll offer my little good and you give me the rest that I'm lacking. We have nothing to bring. We come trembling with empty hands and shame and red-faced blushing of a guilty heart. And if you don't see that, you haven't even understood the ABCs of the gospel. The gospel is bad news for good people. But it's good news for bad people. If you think you're good, the gospel's not all that great. But if you know you're bad, the gospel is sweet. When you see what we are by nature, Jesus becomes most precious to us. So here's... We continue. Job says, we drink iniquity like water, Job 15, verses 16, 14 through 16. Job 15, 16, man drinks iniquity like water. Think nothing of it. Guzzle it down. It's good. It satisfies us for a moment. We're thirsty for our sin. We crave it. We drink it like water. In Proverbs chapter 1, look at how sinners war against God. In Proverbs chapter 1, God says, I called, but you refused. I stretched out my hand to beckon you. I stretched out my hand to call you, to woo you, and you did not pay attention. I stretched out my hand, no man regarded. You did not have any heed, no ear to hear my pleading. You said it not, all my counsel, you would not, you would none of my reproof. You hated knowledge, you would not choose the fear of the Lord. You despised my counsel. God says, therefore, your own foolishness will destroy you. Proverbs chapter 1. The unregenerate, natural man, the lost man or woman, All these are synonyms, unregenerate, natural, lost, by nature. All these are different ways of saying the the man or woman who has not come to the Lord Jesus Christ in repentant faith. In our natural state, we are at war with our maker. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, Isaiah 1, 5 and 6. Well, verse 4, Isaiah 1, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, full of iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors, they have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel into anger. They're gone away backwards. 
Verse 5, the whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there's no soundness in it. But wounds and bruises and putrefying sores that have not been closed, nor bound up, nor mollified with ointment. So he says, this is the whole nation of Israel, the best nation, the nation with the most privileges and the most light. This nation before God was full of bruises and wounds and putrefying sores that have not been bound up from the crown of the head to the sole of the foot. A seed of evildoers, a corrupt people, gone away backwards from God. What kind of ungratefulness is that? How could a man or woman treat the good, kind, benevolent, triune, merciful, just God with such disdain? And yet this is what sinners do always. This is what we are by nature. God calls Ezekiel and he says, Ezekiel, I'm going to send you to a hard-hearted people. And Ezekiel, they won't listen to you because they don't listen to me. Ezekiel 3, 7. They're impudent. They're hard-hearted. They're stubborn. And you're going to preach to them. I'm sending you to them, Ezekiel. And they're not going to listen to anything you say because they don't listen to what I say. What a charge against the people. This is the sinner. Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, incurably wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah 17, 9. Jeremiah 13, 23 says, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then you may also do good that are accustomed to do evil. We cannot fix ourselves. We cannot change ourselves. That's Jeremiah 13, 23. The problem is us. We can't be the solution. We're the problem. We can't fix ourselves. Proverbs 20, verse 9 says, Who can say I have made my heart clean? I am free from my sin. Who can say that? Who can say I have made my heart clean? I am pure from my sin. Who can say that? None of us can. None can say it. Because we can't do it. The book of Ecclesiastes says, God made man upright. This is Ecclesiastes 7.29. God made man upright. Which is to say, at the beginning, God made us sinless. He didn't make us wretches. He made us upright in His sight. We started out right. But we let me quote uh, Ecclesiastes 7.29. Lo, this only have I found, that God hath made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. They've sought out many schemes. These that were made upright are now schemers. And they're crafty and they're deceitful and they figure out numerous ways and creative ways to pursue the lusts of their heart and mind. Because man is at war with his maker, beloved. The natural man... This little thing of dirt and willfulness. That's what we are. This little thing, this little creature called man, made upright, made to walk with the living God, made for the glory of God, made in His image, made for relationship, is now a little dirt ball of willfulness and stubbornness and all manner of uncleanness. This is what we are by nature. 
And then we get to the New Testament. And Jesus said, Mark 7, 20 through 23, from within, out of the heart of men. Okay, here's where evil comes from. It's not out there somewhere. It's in here. In the heart of man proceeds evil thoughts, adulteries, fornication, theft, murder, wickedness, sensuality, covetousness, deceit, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and that's what defiles us. We are at war with our God. We're at war with our Maker. In John chapter 3, verse 19 and 20, John says, This is the condemnation that light is come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. So the light comes into the world. Jesus comes into the world. Men love the dark. They hate the light. Jesus comes to this world, and the world hates him until they can finally get their plan fulfilled, and they spit in his face and beat him with their hands and kill him. This is man at war with his maker. Wait till the Son of God comes incarnate. Wait till God himself gets here in human form, and watch what men will do at that time. And you see there in crystal clear clarity the enmity of the human heart against his God. The perfect man walks among us saying nothing but truth all the time. Doing good. Healing the lame. Giving sight to the blind. Feeding the multitudes. Welcoming children and welcoming outcasts. Here is the Son of God in our midst. What do people do to him? The same thing that people have been doing all along in their hearts to their God, the God who made us, despising Him, resenting Him, hating Him, until they can finally get their hands on Him, and they will do all that they find in their heart. They gladly do away with Him. They gladly pay somebody to betray Him. They gladly tell the powers that be, the governor, Pilate, King, Herod, and the Sanhedrin, all those in authority to pull off this great travesty of justice to destroy the Lord Jesus Christ because man is at war with his God, with his maker. Romans chapter 1 spends a good bit of time talking about what we are by nature. In Romans 1.18, we read that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. They suppress the truth. They push away the truth from them. They wickedly obstruct the truth. They stiff arm God and His truth. And God's wrath is even now being revealed against them. He, he gives them up to that. If, if, if a man will hate God... If a woman will hate God to the point of calling themselves an atheist or something that's against nature, against God's created order, God will give them over to that. That's part of His wrath. He will let them run wide open in that. In His goodness, He could restrain them. He could pull them back and reason and open their eyes, but they are so hateful toward their Maker 
that one way God displays his wrath is he gives them over to depraved minds and reprobate minds. And they run wide open into all kinds of evil. And God is not mocked. What a man sows, he will reap. But we see in Romans chapter 1, man at war with God. Man looks at creation and he knows God exists. He knows some things about God from creation. He knows that God exists. And he knows that God is powerful and very purposeful. And in his heart, he says, I do not want this God. I want a God more like me. And so he fashions in his mind a false God. He turns the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and beasts and creeping things, and God gives them over to that. And the uncleanness of their heart just boils up and overflows. Men with men, women with women, it says in Romans chapter 1. All this is evidence of God's wrath against a God-hating culture. They're full of envy, full of murder, full of deceit, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God. Romans 1.30. Proud boasters. Inventors of evil things. Disobedient to parents. Without understanding. Covenant breakers. Without natural affection. Unmerciful. Implacable. The ESV says foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. This is man in his natural state at war with God. You get to chapter 3 of Romans, and it's like God puts man up on the x-ray table. He says, I want to x-ray you, give you my diagnosis. And he says, Romans 3, 9 through 20, all are under sin, under its power, enslaved by it. Both Jews and Gentiles are under sin, under its control, under its condemnation, under its power. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. That means the whole human race, beloved, is unrighteous. Which means they're ungodly. Which means they're not like God. Which means they're not doing God's will. They're against God. There's none righteous. No, not one. There's none that understands. So there's none righteous. That's the heart of man. At at his heart, he is unrighteous. In his mind, he doesn't understand. And it says there's none that seeks after God. There's his will. So his heart is unrighteous. His mind doesn't understand. And in his will, he does not seek God. In fact, he seeks to avoid God. So heart, mind, and will, the whole of our being. This is what we mean when we say total depravity. Not that... We never do anything good. You know, a sinner can help a little old lady across the street. That's good. It doesn't mean we're as vile and wretched as we possibly could be, but it means we're depraved in all of our being, in all of our parts, heart, mind, will, affections, appetites. Heart, mind, will, affection, appetites. We are corrupt in all of our constituent parts. Our heart goes astray. Our mind thinks wrongly. Our will doesn't seek God. And now God's going to x-ray us. He's going to begin. He's going to say, open your mouth. Let me see what's in your mouth. And he says, their throat is an open sepulcher. They use their tongues to deceive. Poison is in their lips like a rattlesnake. 
Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. God says, you can close your mouth now. I've seen enough. Let me look at your feet. Verse 15, your feet is swift to shed blood. Your feet are swift to shed blood. You are so eager to do wrong. Slow to do good and happy to do evil. You run with energy to do wrong. You drag your feet to do good. Destruction and misery are in your ways. Somehow we manage to defile and destroy all that we touch. We leave a trail of pain and suffering in our wake. There's no fear of God before their eyes, verse 18. And nowhere do we see man's true spiritual condition more clearly than in that statement. There's no fear of God before their eyes. There's no submission to and reverence for God. There's no worship to God. There's no gratitude to Him. No obedience. No delight in Him. No humility before Him. There's no fear of God before their eyes. What an, what an x-ray that is. Every person in every part of our being is corrupt and in desperate need of a Savior. This is what we are by nature. Are you thinking of uh, really bad people right now? Hitler, Jeffrey Dahmer, these serial killers, these mass murderers, these heinous acting men or women that did unspeakable things. Beloved, we're all in that category. By nature, in our unregenerate condition, this is what all people are. And you say, what about the little child? They were born into a Christian home. And they believed on Jesus when they were a child. Five years old, six, seven, eight years old. Were they at war with God? Absolutely. If not, why were they saved? And what were they saved from? Of course they were. Of course they are. They haven't had as many years or as much experience to act out that defiance. But make certain of this. The Word of God is true in its diagnosis of us. And it was God's kindness that maybe prevented them from a lot of rebellion down the road. But in our natural state, we are at war with our maker. That's our point I'm trying to show you today. And I know you know this. Romans chapter 8 says that the carnal mind, the fleshly mind, is at enmity with God. Enmity with God, Romans 8, 7. The carnal mind is enmity. The fleshly mind, that's what carnal means, the unregenerate mind. The mind that thinks on natural and fleshly things. That kind of mind is against God. He's at enmity with God. He is not subject to the law of God. Neither indeed can be. Romans 8, 7. There's nothing in him that says submission. Everything in him says rebellion. And Paul even makes it a point in Romans 7 to say, I thought at one time I was a good law keeper. But then I saw the commandment, thou shalt not covet. And that commandment, that, that 
forbidden word, thou shalt not covet, stirred up covetousness in me. And he said, it's not that the law is at fault. The law is holy and just and good, but the problem was in me. The law said, thou shalt not covet. And I had this unholy curiosity to covet. Uh, Think of walking somewhere through a building and you see a sign on the wall that says, wet paint, do not touch. And everything within you wants to go, is it really wet? I can probably just touch it a little bit. And it won't. It's really good. And, and why do you want to do what you're told not to do? Do not touch. And something within us says, oh, but I want to touch it. But you told me not to, and that makes me want to. And this is the, kind of the truth of what Paul has said in Romans 7. The law says don't do this, and somehow that stirs up within me a desire to want to do it. And it's not that the law is at fault. It's that the law reveals what I am, a sinner, a wretch. At war with the lawgiver. First Corinthians 2 says the things of God are foolishness to the natural man. First Corinthians 2.14. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them. They're spiritually discerned. So the natural man hears the things of God and the natural man says, That's dumb. That's stupid. That's foolish. And that's why Jesus said, don't cast pearls before swine. Don't take the precious things of Christ and lay them out there for pigs to trample them in there under their feet. The pigs won't appreciate the pearls. The pig is an unclean thing. So you guard those precious pearls. And, and we take the precious things and we lay them before everybody that we can. And if we find them to be a swine, a mocker of God, a mocker of God's truth, we will not continue putting precious things before them for them to trample. That man will say, that's dumb, that's foolish. Why does he say such things? Because he's at war with God. Romans 5, our chapter that we're in, says that when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly, Romans 5, 6. Those who had no strength, no ability to save themselves, to change themselves, to fix themselves. No strength. Totally unable. The total inability of the sinner. No strength. In fact, Ephesians makes it even clearer. He says when we were dead in trespasses and sins. That's how much strength we had. Zero strength. We were dead in sin. But it was at that time Christ died for the ungodly And for those who were yet sinners, Christ died, verse 8. And when we were enemies, verse 10, Romans 5, 10, when we were enemies, you say, well, I'm not an enemy. Well, believe the Bible or believe your own heart. Romans 5, 10 says, when we were enemies, enemies of God, and we made ourselves his enemy by our foolishness, our perversity, our idolatry, our stubbornness, Ephesians 2, verse 1 through 3, you should have plenty of things to ponder when you think about the depravity of man. You should have many examples for you to understand how deep, how deeply rooted is the aversion to God, 
He is always, she is always without fail in their natural state in defiance of God. You say, well, people are spiritual and religious. But you see, man's spirituality and man's religion, apart from the light of Scripture, is always yet another manifestation of his rebellion. For he worships a false god, a god of his own making. And you hear people say silly things. And you can see by their statements that their heart is still up in arms against their maker. God in his grace provides a savior in his son. He sends his own son into this world. And what do sinners say? Well, what about those that don't believe on Jesus? And why is the way so narrow? And even in the grace of God given in Christ, sinners will find fault with God. They will judge God. They will find him to be blameworthy some way. What is that but a manifestation of man's depravity? To blame God for a narrow way. In Ephesians 2, we read, And you hath he quickened, or made alive. Remember, we're in Romans 5. Romans 5 says that we're justified by faith. Ephesians says we're made alive. He's he's coming at salvation from a different angle. We were dead, and now he's made us alive. We were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past, this is what we were. Now watch this. In time past, before he made us alive, here's how we lived and here's how we acted. Here's how we moved and walked. This was our life. We walked according to the course of this world. We were worldly people doing worldly things, loving the things of this world. This world was our everything. We were dead in sin and we walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. The spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh. If it felt good, we wanted to do it. That's all we needed to know. Does it feel good? Do I like it? That's all I need to know. Not just what does God say, but do I want to do this? Then get out of my way. I'm going to do it. We have desires. We have appetites and lusts, and we go for that wide open. This is our natural state. This is our unregenerate life. Living in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we're by nature the children of wrath, even as the rest. But God. Amen? But God. So there is a a good handful, a double handful of of passages. There are many others. There are many others. Ephesians 4, 17 through 19. Our understanding is dark. Our mind is vain. It's the vanity of our mind. We're full of ignorance. Our heart is blind. We're past feeling. We give ourselves over unto sensuality. 
with all greediness. We can't get enough of sin. This is the sinner. This is you and me before Jesus. This is us B.C. before Christ. We were at war with God. If you're without Christ today, if you're not a man or woman, boy or girl that's born of the Spirit, you're still at war with God. Now here's my second point. I've got to hurry. Not only is man at war with God, but God is at war with man. This little defiant rebel. You say, well, where are you going to take us there? I'm going to take you to Romans 1.18 again. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God's wrath is even now being revealed, poured out and demonstrated upon those who are ungodly in God's abandonment. He leaves them to go the way of their choosing. This is an element of His wrath. I'm going to take you to Romans 5, 8 again. God says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And while we were enemies, we were reconciled. John 3, 36. He that believeth on the Son has everlasting life. Amen. He who believes on the Son of God has everlasting life. He that believes not shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Present tense. God's wrath abides on that one that does not believe on his son. That man may have many successful days in this life, but he never has a safe day. He may have a good day. He may have what appeared to be a nice day, a good day, a successful day, but he's never truly living a safe day because as long as he will not bow his heart to Jesus Christ, the wrath of God abides on him. The sentence has just already been passed, beloved. God in His mercy is withholding the punishment, but the sentence is already passed. You're condemned already. The wrath of God abides on the sinner. This little thing of dirt and willfulness rebels against his maker, and this man challenges God's right to the throne, and God pours out His anger continually, and He looks upon that sinner with compassion, yes, but as an opponent. God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Turn to Psalm 7 with me real quick. Psalm 7. And here we have language that shows something of God being at war with the defiant sinner. Psalm 7, 11 through 14. God judgeth the righteous, and God is angry with the wicked every day. There's John 3.36, just put it a different way. The wrath of God abides on him, we read in John 3.36. Here we read, God is angry with the wicked every day. Verse 12, if he turn not, if that wicked man will not turn, he will not repent. If he doesn't come back, he's gone the wrong way. If he will not turn, it says, God will sharpen or whet his sword. He hath bent his bow and made it ready. So God is pictured here as a warrior with a bow and a sword. And he has a sharp sword and he has an accurate bow. And he is to be a warrior against that unrepentant sinner if he will not turn. 
He hath prepared for him the instruments of death, verse 13. He ordains his arrows against the persecutors. Notice the language of verse 14. It's, it's the language of, of motherhood, of giving birth, but he describes it of all the wicked. He says, he travails with iniquity, he conceives mischief, and he brings forth a lie. This is the sinner. This is the rebel. He conceives evil. He labors in mischief, and he brings forth a lie. This is the unregenerate man and woman. At war with God, and God the warrior is at war with the rebel. Ephesians 5. Maybe this will be the last passage today. Look at Ephesians 5. And verse 3. Well, let's, let's start at verse 1. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love, as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness let it not be once named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not convenient, they're not proper, they're out of place for the saints. But rather giving of thanks, for this ye know that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words. For because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. So don't be deceived by those who try to excuse sin. Don't follow smooth-talking, sugar-mouthed preachers who excuse sin, who say damning things to you about sin. And about the nature of God. Don't be deceived with vain words. Because of these things. Fornication. Uncleanness. The things that come out of our mouth. Etc. Because of these things. The wrath of God comes upon the children of disobedience. God is at war with the sinner. Because the sinner is at war with God. Now beloved. That's a pretty dark picture. It's a dark picture. Maybe you'd say a depressing message today. It's, it's necessary, though, to understand the gospel. That's what we are by nature, and we can't change it. And nobody else can either. But, beloved, the war is now over. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. We were at war with him. And he was at war with us. And Jesus as mediator comes. The God man. And he satisfies the demands of God. And he identifies with the needs of men. And he takes the place between two offended parties. God and man. And as mediator he brings us together. And the war is over. And now we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's necessary to understand the depth of our depravity, the radical 
inability of the sinner. He does not understand. He does not seek God. He is not righteous. His mouth, his hands, his feet, his heart is wrong in the sight of God. And all his actions are little acts of defiance against God. Even when he does good, it's a self-righteous good. And he does it for his glory. This is what we are by nature. But by grace, through Christ, we are now brought into a state of justification. He declares us righteous. And because of it, he's no longer directing wrath toward us. The wrath fell on his son. We now have peace with God. He changes our heart and puts in a new heart, a heart of of flesh instead of a heart of stone. So that now we no longer want to war against our God. And he puts the Holy Spirit in us as a seal to guard us all the way home so that we don't fall out along the way. And he turns his mind in favor now toward us, not in wrath toward us. The war is over. Blessed be our Lord. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is finished. The battle's over. The weapons of war are laid down. He has taken our spears and he's turned them into pruning hooks already. He has taken our armament that we used to live for ourselves and defy him and he's now miraculously turned them into instruments of peace and good. And all praise be to our God. Amen. All praise be to our God. And so this is the first result of justification. Therefore, being justified by faith, number one, we have peace with God. And we'll look at two or three others down the road here. This is the first one. Peace with God. Do you know this? Do you understand this passage? Do you understand God's grace in His Son? I've heard preachers say, and I've read books and blogs and posts that can be very dangerous. I've heard people say, preachers say, and and authors write things to a wide audience, like at a funeral, for instance, or, or even a wedding or any meeting. They say, God is not angry with you anymore. And he ought to say, if you have come to his son... But if you just leave it wide open across the board like that, if you say God is not angry with you anymore and you give sinners a false hope that they are okay just like they are, they don't need to repent, they don't need to bow their heart before Jesus. If they're a murderer, a drunk, whatever they are, a a hateful man, a profane man, a promiscuous and an adulterous man, don't worry, God's not angry with you anymore. The way is so wide now, you're just fine just like you are. That is damnable. We ought to say this and say it carefully and put a fine point of precision on the sentence. We ought to say, if you have come to his son in faith, God is not angry with you anymore. And if you're outside of his son or defiant still of his son, the wrath of God is right now abiding on you. And so... 
We want to be clear in our gospel, don't we? Amen. Let's pray. Please stand. We have tried, Father, today to remind your people of the blessedness of justification by faith and the attending results of that. The first one being, as listed here in this passage, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray this will be the joy of our heart this day as we contemplate and meditate upon this and sing your praises. We are amazed that we were allowed to live so long in defiance of you. You could have at any moment crushed us and cast us into hell. And you patiently bore with the little defiant rebels. And you have called a great multitude to yourself. And we can say with the Apostle Paul in the first century and with saints all around the world here in this century that we are most blessed that God spared us in our foolishness and brought us to himself and shows us great favor in his son. And so we praise you this day. We thank you for who you are and for what you have done, our Lord. We thank you for this sweet, glorious gospel, the gospel of grace that lifts up a Savior who is worthy. Is there anyone that is whole? Can anyone fulfill your plan? Is anyone able? Is anyone qualified? We thank you for the lion and the lamb, our Lord Jesus, who conquered the grave and laid his life down as a lamb. We praise you, Lord, for the great gospel truths that we've pondered for a few moments here. Strengthen us in these things. We live in such a scoffing world, a world today that we believe is becoming more and more secular-minded and more far removed from biblical truth so that people don't even have biblical categories anymore to think of men and women, what they are and what they have done. The the lines have been so blurred. Everything is now just a muddle of gray in the middle. There seems to be such a lack of understanding of right and wrong, good and evil. In fact, Lord, we have called good evil and evil good. And we have reaped the benefits of that foolishness in our day. We pray for our children. We pray for our church and the churches around this world that are your churches. That are holding out your word. That are not giving in to the trends of the day. Whatever they may be today or next month. That we will stand fast and hold fast the faithful word. Whether the world cheers us on or calls for our death, may we be faithful to you and faithful to your precious word. 
And I pray, Lord, we'll go today and know the sweet peace of God because we have peace with God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And I'll give you the benediction. We started with an invocation asking God to help and we confessed our sins and we prayed for his illumination and we interceded for our brothers and sisters. And now let me bless you in the name of the Lord. Receive this benediction from Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And all God's people said, Amen, Amen.